And I'm Livia Snedden. Uh, this is our third of five installments of our Noir at the Bar reading. And uh, tonight's feature, Kevin Lynn Helmick. Kevin Lynn Helmick is the author of Sebastian Cross and Heartland Gothic. And we recently discovered is practically our neighbor. Um, we found out when we were going down to St. Louis that it turns out he lives probably 10 to 15 miles from Livius and I. So uh, kind of an odd coincidence, but it was nice to meet him and uh, nice to hear him read. And now you will, too. Um, you're going to hear him read a couple of different passages, but there are, uh, the first half there is from Sebastian Cross, second half from Heartland Gothic. Um, I got to tell you, Heartland Gothic, I'm uh, looking forward to maybe getting my hands on a copy of that. I agree. All right, without further ado, here's Kevin Lynn Helmick reading from Sebastian Cross and Heartland Gothic. Anyway, uh, our next reader is Kevin Lynn Helmick. That's L. Kevin L is the middle initial. And uh, he comes from up around Chicago, and he's written a novel called Heartland Gothic. He also has a Facebook group called Heartland Gothic, and I don't know if it's open for... It's wide open. It's wide open, so if you want to join... No rules. No rules. No rules, and just uh, pure Kevin goodness all the time. Uh, And the book is is for sale. It's here, uh, as is Sebastian Cross, another novel. And uh, without further ado, here's Kevin. Wrote this book a couple years ago. Haven't looked at it since until this morning. Thought it was good at the time. We'll find out. This is Sebastian Cross. This is a this is a story about a literary agent who comes across an exceptional writer and it changes his life forever. The, the, the writer writes a sort of anti-Bible that affects a lot of people around the world. So, here we go, Sebastian Cross. As I stood at the counter and waited for my $5 cup of coffee, the morning news had the attention of everyone around. An unusually eerie silence had filled the little cafe, and I watched too. I tried not to, but I did. This kid slid my cup toward me without so much as a glance or a low. Focus his concentration on the television as well. I poured in my sugar, stirred, studied the people who had all, all forgotten about their laptops, books, and even the conversations they were having. They'd known me for years in that place, but on this particular morning, I might as well have been invisible. I couldn't help but smile as I looked around the room and overheard the whispers and speculated on the possibilities. I knew one thing for sure that when it came to him, you couldn't believe anything you heard and only half of what you saw seemed others share this philosophy too. I picked up my briefcase, walked toward the exit. The waitress, a pretty Northside college kid, stopped her, her morning duties and was waiting for me to open the door. With worried eyes and far too pale complexion. Is that true, Mr. Henshaw, she said? What they're saying is true? She handed me the morning paper, making sure I saw the headline. I tucked it under my arm and said, you know, sweetheart, I looked back at the television. I really don't know, but I doubt it. I gave her shoulder a pat, moved around her and out the door. 
I thought about it as I walked up the street to my office and stopped at the park bench where no one would see me. Took another look at the newspaper. The snow had turned to rain and dumped down on the text, causing it to bleed black tears down the page faster than I could read. But I knew what it said anyway. I rolled the paper up under my and slid it into my coat pocket and took a drink of my coffee and whispered, shit. He's a friend and a client, my first client really, and together we, we kicked some literary ass. He single-handedly redefined modern literature and we braved the turbulent waters of fame and success. That we did, but it was more than that, so much more. Now a little bit further into the book. Sebastian and the agent Murray Henschel are meeting for lunch. He calls him up in the night. Uh, I'm not up for this right now, Sebastian. Really, I'm not. What's wrong with you, Murray? Let's get some breakfast. It's nothing. My dad's an asshole. I really don't uh, want to talk about it. Where are you at? I'm going to the restaurant just west of the water tower by Leo Campus. You know it, right? I'll meet you there in 15 minutes. I don't think so, Sebastian. Sebastian, uh, I tried, but he had hung up. I pulled myself out of bed, jumped in the quick shower, and grabbed a cup of coffee on the way. It's a short ride from my apartment, and he was waiting outside. We, we proceeded to the cafeteria-type line, ordered our pre-manufactured breakfast. Just the smell of the sausage and bacon cooking began to make my stomach growl, and I thought about pushing the undecided idiot in front of us out of the way. I was feeling a little better about coming. When do you want me to set up this interview with Mark Frazier, I asked, grabbing a couple of trays from the stack. Before Friday, Penny and I are going to London for a few days, and we'll be back there next week. Why are you going to London? Don't worry. You're not going to be dealing with Moon Publishing and Whisper from now on. Whisper's a book that he'd written before. I don't have any interest in that. Is there some reason you don't want Moon for Wages of Sin? No, not at all. I'll leave it up to you, he said, picking out of the table by the window. So what's the deal with your dad? He sounded depressed on the phone. Uh, he helped me get the business started, and now he wants interest on the loan. We never really saw it, I, anything. I shouldn't be talking about this with you. It, it's not personal. I mean, it is personal. It's personal to me. All right, he said, pausing and studying my face. I can respect that. Thank you. Where's Penny? She's working. I could tell he was thinking by the way he circled his fork around his booth. Working on Sunday? She's an artist, Marty. Artists don't care what day of the week it is. They're always working, even when they're sleeping. He laughed. They're not like you and me, worker bees. We need to be inspired by something or someone in order to create. Living and breathing, that's enough inspiration for an artist. You don't consider yourself an artist? No, I wish I was. At the same time, I'm glad I'm not. I'm a surveyor, a documenter. I can quit whenever I want. An artist can't. No more than a leopard can change his spots. That's an interesting observation. Not sure if it's one I want to hear as your agent, I mean. He smiled and continued. I enjoy what I do. I see it as, I don't know, more organic. You have an idea, a seed. It might not even be a good idea, but you start to take care of it. And it changes from a seed into something else. It already exists somewhere out there. You really have your basic components. They don't really mean anything. Plot, storyline, beginning, end, and so on. But then you have to color it with vocabulary, dialogue, verbs, pronouns. You have to color it with the tools you have available. It's like building a house with bricks. An artist creates the bricks, and the writer chooses them. My bricks are language and story. And the payoff? What do you enjoy the most? 
What I enjoy the most is what happens in the heat of composition. What comes out as I'm writing, what I'm coloring. You can't plan that. I could have a particular idea where I'm going on the next chapter or page and 20 pages later. It's not at all what I plan. The only way to open it up is to begin and go. Just start writing. Go back and read it. And you know you couldn't think of that ahead of time. It's, a, it's kind of free associated. That's what I get off on. Sounds like an artist to me. I couldn't do that. You could and have. Writing is a trait, a skill, and all you need is the intellect to make the right choices for you, for your house. It's all about choices. He slid the breakfast tray to the side and decided to make a point. One morning in London, Annie wakes up and wants to go to Paris. There's a photograph there she dreams about the night before in her mind's eye. In Paris, just waiting for her to come and release the shutter. So we drive all night and we get to this little barista just before it opens. Penny sets up her tripod, loads her camera, and this homeless old man comes around the corner all tattered and beaten by life. His hair was long and silver, his beard was tangled and matted past his waist. His feet were wrapped in rags for shoes. She grabs my sleeve and catches her breath as if she's frightened by seeing her dream in real time. The old man picks up a cigarette butt off the sidewalk and puts it on the tables. Penny gets behind her camera just as the waiter comes out and starts abusing the old man, trying to run him off. She takes the picture and we drive back to London. So Penny's a psychic? No, she's not a psychic. She's an artist. That's my point. She created the photograph in her mind while she was sleeping, and all she had to do was drive to Paris and pick it up. That's an artist. And at that point, for her, it's done. For me, for most everyone, it will never be done. We'll always wonder who he was, how he got to that place in his life, who did he love, who loved him, and so on. That's the difference. That's what she created. The photograph itself is irrelevant. I shook my head in agreement like I understood, but I couldn't. But I could tell he was either frustrated with me or himself for not making his point. We both took a drink of our coffee, and I asked, you love her, don't you? I do, very much. She's an amazing girl, and she's good for me, like Xanax. He laughed. I laughed. Do you think you two will get married? No. Why would I ruin it by getting married? But what about you, Mr. Personal? You have someone? No, not at the moment. I used to see a girl, but not for a while now. And I wasn't uh, what you two have. It was uncomfortable, I guess. I'm sorry to hear that, Murray. You seem like a good guy to me. It'll come to you when you're not looking for it. Yeah, that's what they say. Right now, I'm just trying to get on my own two feet. That'll come too, he assured me. We walked through the diner and out to the street. Well, Murray, I feel good about this. I better get going. I wanted to let you know that you'll be taking care of Whisper, and you'll be hearing from Moon Publishing to set up the account. I think they want a book tour with winter coming, and I'll be ready to get out of here for a while. Okay, let's move on to something a little more. Murray's, Murray's father dies. It's a funeral scene. Rain, rain, fucking rain. I pulled the Ferrari to a stop, looked out across the empty cemetery, a dense, misty fog that settled and swirled about, just off the ground like lingering spirits accepting their own. Three black umbrellas dotted the gray horizon. I knew without seeing that it was my mother, Uncle Charlie, Sebastian, and Penny. Sebastian never even met the man. With all his wealth, supposed power, he couldn't manage to hang on to a single friend or acquaintance in his life or death. A cold, miserable, rainy day, and everyone had something better to do. He despised Sebastian Cross and his early rise to success through intellectual talent. My father had none of those qualities, and he hated those with envy who did. Uh, yet, there he was for me, Sebastian came for me. 
I was miserable and pathetically sick to my very core. Sarah reached over and put her hand in mine. You ready? She said softly. Yeah, I guess. I grabbed the umbrella from the back. The street had become a shallow river and I walked around the car and opened the door for her. Our shoes sank deep in the soft soil, feeling like it could pull us into the graves beneath. The hovering concrete angels as we slid and, and dug our way up to his final resting place. He had to pick the highest spot in the whole fucking cemetery. Of course he did. Penny left the safety of her umbrella and gave me a long hug and squeezed out a tear. She looked at me with rain dancing off her cheeks and showed me her sad smile. She turned to Sarah, throwing her arms around her. Sebastian looked at me too, expressionless, and said only, Murray. Uncle Charlie shook my hand and said nothing. There'll be a parade when Charlie passes. It'll be a goddamn party, I'm sure of it. And from the look of confusion on his face, he knew it too. My mother just stared off in the distance as we huddled close to her for the service. The rain bouncing off the open Bible, turning the pages of paper mache paste as Father O'Malley read the Lord's Prayer from memory. Even in death, Conrad Henshaw was difficult to deal with. I noticed Sebastian's boots soaked through and covered with mud. My father's mud. Ironic it was. Sebastian This book covers decades and continents. Decade, decades and continents. It's, it goes on for a span of 22 years during the lives of these two people and, uh, and the effect that this uh, book that Sebastian Cross has written has on people's lives. It's, uh, it kind of stemmed from my fascination with Catcher in the Rye and, and some of the things that went about you know, in the 70s and 80s with that, the Lennon thing and all that. And I thought about what, what would happen if a book like that was written, and it didn't just affect a couple of people, but it affected a lot of people. And that's what happens, and that's what they got to deal with. So, Heartland Gothic. Just finished this. Interesting story. It was published for seven days. <laughs> and uh, there, was a, there was a deal with the publisher that forced me to ask to have my contract returned to me. So, so I'm still waiting to hear from a few other guys out there and see what happens with that. So I'll just start. Each each pair, each uh, chapter of this is uh, started out in a third person narrative of a story that's going on behind the scene that uh, nobody's really aware of until the end. There was a time not too long ago when I didn't know much of anything, still don't. But I've learned one thing for sure. The worst time to die for someone to die is in the winter, near the holidays. And if that death holds a tragic breath, causing me to find myself overcome with unfulfilled notions of something that could have been done, should have been done, and it settles in with the cold in the winter and lingers like a lonely frozen frog in your conscience, you might as well embrace it. For it is, and forever, a part of who you are. The snow had stopped and the sun had taken over the gunmetal sky, turning it to an ice blue and silver. Long forgotten relatives stood in a small circle and revisited memories while the man of God said things of eternal rest, kind, personal words over a soul we never knew in life, but seemed to know well enough in death. And the day and this talk went on too long. But they stood with patience, listened, and waited with well-bred manners. The gathering was mostly men, strong men, men who waste no tears on things that can't be changed. So they believe in those words, and uh, it was all they had. 
the old man sat in temporary time confines from the accident that had brought them all together on this heavy day. A wheelchair that had to be carried from the car by his sons, her sons, and the act made him feel even weaker because of it, helpless. He gazed at the mahogany casket with watering eyes and swelling emotion of vengeance. A mission, an obsession was beginning to grow in the mind that had put those youthful energies to sleep long ago. Their boys, men really, but not on this day, bowed their heads and crossed their hands low. They tried to comfort him in masculine ways. They stood next to him, one side, one on either side, and said nothing. Something was missing, though, as something always is, and the void left things to do. More phone calls, more talking, explaining that things rather left alone and buried with her. Maybe a journey to be made far from this beautiful hell, to a place that cared nothing about this woman or loved her, a place far from the river and sky. When the service was over all at once, it seemed too short. His voice looked down at him, and he made a silent gesture with his hand. They picked up the chair together as if it weighed nothing and trudged through the ankle-deep snow to the pickup truck waiting on the narrow path. Younger of the two sons lit a cigarette and leaned across the hood of the truck and watched the workers, waiting to complete the deed as they looked at one another with nervous apprehension. The older son helped his father into the truck and took a long, pleading gaze from the old man's eyes. The son shook his head in agreement, a telepathic promise, shut the door, folded up the chair, and put it in the back. He turned to his brother and looked at him. The brother just flipped the cigarette away and walked back to his own truck, and they all left the same way they came, a slow, similar file procession. A few days later, many miles away, another funeral was taking place in the West Hollywood Cafe. Not a death of flesh and blood, but a passing of life all the same. A screenwriter, his agent, a film producer, sit at the table and surrounded the dearly departed, the writer's script. So it's a Western, producer said, sucking an oyster from his half shell and smacking his lips together like two slugs kissing. Bloomfield's a major film producer and the only thing standing between me and my next mortgage payment. It's a modern Western, I said, worried about an aneurysm. I had been obsessed with aneurysms for months. A good friend of mine died from one. One minute he was fine, next minute he was lying on the floor bleeding from his eyes, ears, nose, and mouth dead. I think it was an aneurysm. I would say it out loud when I was alone, aneurysm, even when I wasn't thinking about it, like a thought escaping, and I would look around and see if I could catch it. No cowboys, no Indians, he said, glaring at Nicky, my agent of 12 years. Nick is a twitch in my eye, a pain in my ass, a neck in my, my neck, my brain, Nick Wynn is my aneurysm, and I suppose I am his. No cowboys, Nick said, leaning back, adjusting his glasses, and raising the iced tea to his lips while he texted his phone. A little help here, I thought. A little backup, please. But no, Nick just sat there and smirked and huffed and creamed at something on his phone, or absolutely nothing at all. I couldn't tell. I don't know. I'm just not seeing a movie here, guys. I mean, I'll put it as easy as I can, but this sucks. <laughs> this, this is not good at all. You got a Western, but you got no cowboys, no Indians. And nobody wants Westerns right now. What, you think you're Kevin Costner? That's putting it easy, I said, laughing. It's a, it's a modern Western. I was now getting inspired to write a dark comedy about the life of a screenwriter and dealing with Hollywood assholes. It's not set in the old West. Just forget the word Western if it helps. I know, I know, Nick said without looking up. I totally agree. It's just the first draft, Mr. Bloomfield. Most of it, more of an outline, really. An outline, I questioned grinding my teeth. I knew how long I'd worked on this. He knew I couldn't afford another rewrite. He wouldn't uh, look at me. He just smiled and nodded at Bloomfield and patted my shoulder. 
what about this, Bloomfield said, stuffing a forkful of salad, a small shrub really, into his mouth before he began chewing the words. What if the cowboy, he's like riding in the desert, like in Texas, and he comes across this band of Indians, see, and they're raping this girl, right? And the cowboy, Wes, uh, Wesley Broadfield, he finally swallows. The cowboy rescues the girl, kills the Indians, they go to California. He's a miner, and together they find a bunch of gold, and they're all jumping up and down. It's raining or something like that. What about something like that? I love it, Broomfield. That's brilliant, Nick said, setting his tea down, sitting up straight for the first time. His Gucci glass is now on the tip of his nose as he rubs his hands together. Now that's a movie. I filled my cheeks and let it out slow. That's a movie, I asked. You do realize miners and cowboys are two different occupations. Why is a miner killing an Indian? And why is even in Texas? Bloomfield flips through the pages and throws a screenplay on the table. I don't know. You're the writer. You figure it out. And that title, it's horrible. I mean, what the hell does that mean? It sounds like a Western. I wasn't even listening at this point. I found something particularly interesting in my shoes, my boots. Why did I wear these boots today? I hadn't worn them in years. And of all days to make myself two inches taller, when I was already a foot taller than Bluefield, I shouldn't have just bought a gun and put it to my head after killing my agent and producer, of course. Now that's a movie. Well, it's a the title's a metaphor, Nick said, and that got my attention. My agent was actually defending my work. But hey, it's gone. New title. Mark can come up with a great title, one that works, can't you, Marco? And the girl, Bloomfield said, what's her name, Claire? That's terrible. It's a fat girl name. Who's the girl? Maybe a dog or a kid. Yes, a kid. Everybody loves a movie with a kid. Maybe an autistic kid, like Rain Man. The Indians... The Indians have kidnapped this kid. Broadfield gets the kid back. It's a rich kid with a big reward, and he's got to get Rain Kid back to California to collect. Forget the mining thing. The mining thing doesn't work. Jake Broadfield's got to get this kid through the Wild West and back to his family. Rain Kid, I said. I tried to smirk, but it came out voluntarily. I tried not to smirk, but it came out involuntarily and with a huff of disgust. I looked at Nick, but he wouldn't look back. And my initial annoyance was progressing to rage. What? Bloomfield said, wrinkling his brow as if I wasn't getting it. But I was getting it. As a drop of dressing ran down his chin that looked suspiciously like blood, my blood, the blood of my screenplay, whatever I said. Wesley Broadfield, you said the cowboy's name was Wesley, not Jake. Nikki laughed and interrupted. Jake, Wesley, doesn't matter. But that's brilliant, Mr. Bloomfield. That rain kid thing is perfect. Now that's a movie. And the kid, and the kid, the rain kid, I said, kid's name is Ira, okay? Ira Goldstein, or Ira Gold for short, another metaphor. And that could be too, the title too, Ira's Gold, or, or Broadfield's Gold. Wait, wait, we'll just call the fucking thing Rain Kid. <laughs> now that's it, that, that's a fucking movie. Bloomfield stopped eating for the first time and his eyes shifted from Nick to me and back to Nick. Nicky sat there silent, pursing his lips and waiting for some sort of cue. Finally, he gave up, sat back, put his glasses back on, and puffed his cheeks out. He let out a long breath of air. I got it two o'clock, Bloomfield said. He stood up, pulled a 50 from his bulging money clip. We'll talk next week, Nicky. He looked at me again before walking off as if trying to get a bad taste out of his mouth. As soon as he was out the door, Nick clutched the sides of his head and tossed his glasses across the table. I said, what the fuck is wrong with you? We had him right there, and you, Ira fucking Goldstein? Are you kidding me? Shut up, Nikki. You make me sick. You really do. 
we had him right there, right where? I, I don't know what meeting you were at, but it sure wasn't this one. That's brilliant, Mr. Bloomfield. I can see it now, Mr. Bloomfield. Can I kiss your ass, Mr. Bloomfield? Jesus, Nikki, I've worked for two years on that screenplay. I'm trying to help you, Marco, so help me, help you. Help me, help you? That's, a, that's fucking Jerry Maguire, Nick. I saw it. Try, try quoting something nobody's seen. Shit, try quoting one of mine. I took a drink of water, set it back down, and raised my eyebrows, waiting for him to try, but he didn't. And that's what I thought. Has anybody in this town said anything original? That's a movie, Mr. Bloomfield? Shit. Okay. This is in the course of a day. He loses his agent. He loses. The, he loses his agent. Loses his publisher. Loses his girlfriend. Loses his car. And he's about to lose his condo all in the course of a day. And then he finds out that his mother has been killed in a drunk driving accident in Iowa. And uh, his brother, long lost, estranged brother Mickey, shows up at his door, completely out of place for L.A. So they get on a plane. They head back. And here we are coming up Route 61. We headed north on old Route 61 along the river. The sun finally woke and hit the water and made the brown ribbon look almost pretty. Small patches of woods would come and go outside my window and the passing trees looked like black sinister skeletons gnarled and twisted. Reaching to the heavens for some reason they only knew. Hibernating till the warmth of spring woke them and brought them back to life. The trees I knew in California probably had nightmares of trees like these. These trees looked like condemned villains. Billboards we passed, weather-beaten, warned and riddled with bullet holes, advertising caves, fireworks, copperhead snakes, and some places where Jesse James robbed and killed and hit for a time. All right, lost my place. I remember asking my dad once why anybody would want to buy a copperhead snake, and he just smiled and told me, it's a gift, son, a gift for someone you don't like very much. And I thought about that, and I thought about Nikki and my agent, and I thought about Margo, and after the... After all those years, it finally made sense. We rode on. Mickey stayed pretty much silent, elbow on the door, chin in his fist. We chain-smoked and traveled in and out of the river valley through small dying towns with brick buildings and boarded-up windows, haunted with the ghost of commerce. Empty factories with broken windows and cracked barren parking lots that might look like art, if not for reality. The dark, depressing reality of these ghosts and memories of what was once produced there. Things like lives, families, college educations, maybe a new Buick or a new Schwinn for Christmas. Memories now, and for a short forever, just ghosts. Driving near the river, we passed and parked rusted freight trains, ruined shacks of old cars and trucks, hoods propped up and tall, dry, dead weeds sinking into the earth. And the road turned away and up the bluff and out through more small towns with their disintegrations displayed without shame. Things had been bad for so long that no one cared to, cared to try anymore. No one cared to even fake it with a coat of paint or a nail here or a screw there. Maybe they didn't rem even remember. Maybe the entire generation had passed on to the ages and there wasn't another to follow. That's how it looked. I became fixated on my window like a black and white photograph. The patchwork of farmland in the valley below rolled up to a continuous roll of timber. The river was out of view, but it was there. I could feel it, like the edge of the world was just over there, and the whitening sky spoke of it as we drove on, and we drove on like people do. Oh, all right. Try to get through here. 
trying to get through here so I can get everybody else to see their chances. Okay. He spends a miserable time in Iowa trying to readjust to his roots. He's been gone for 20 years and the family is in a construction business. And so he goes back to work with them. But after all the shit that goes down and stuff, he finally gets the call that he was uh, working for and it couldn't have been maybe at the worst time. Okay, let's see. Oh no, this one's, this is the uh, Christmas dinner. You'll like this. We sat to eat and Emily prepared for Say Grace. Emily is uh, his older brother's girlfriend. Bobby Swain is the younger brother's girlfriend. We sat to eat and Emily prepared to Say Grace. She reached for Mickey's hand in mine. I fought it, but she wasn't having it, and she clenched it tight and closed her eyes and bowed her head while Bobby tapped her foot under the table. Dear Lord and Savior, she began and took a deep breath, and for one hopeful second, we thought she was through. Dad, Dad lit a cigarette, and Bobby Swain reached for the cranberry sauce, but Emily stopped her with a look and continued, We would like to express our humble gratitude for the gifts of nourishment laid before us, and for you to show mercy on the soul of this creature of yours, and so you that you so generously shared with us, and may you take it into your heavens where it may dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen, Bobby said and grinned. Emily gave her a sneer and cleared her throat and squeezed my hand harder. And we would like to thank you for bringing us all together on this blessed day, for bringing Mark home safe and sound so that he might bask in the glory of your wonderful light and the light of the love of his family. Did you get that, Mark, Bobby said? Are you basking over there? Bobby, please. Emily said, I shook my head at Bobby, and Lord, please bless John, John's the father, and, and guide him through his loss, and help him accept the things he cannot change, and know that the one he loves is there with you, and your love forever, and your kingdom, sweet merciful Lord. I peeked at Dad as he dropped his arm on the table and stared at the side of her head. And please, Scott, and please bless Skylar, and help him see the light, and my Mickey, dear Lord, and keep them safe at work, and blanket them with your love that they can be found and their souls can be saved. Bobby spit out a laugh and looked at Mickey, who just pulled up one corner of his mouth and let out a deep sigh. This guy was chewing on his finger now and raised his eyebrows at me like I said something he missed. And Lord, oh, come on, Bobby said. He gets the idea. It's getting cold for Christ's sake. Bobby, Emily scolded and closed her eyes, poised herself for more. Amen. They're happy, she said, and started unfolding the napkin. You bitch, Bobby said. What about me? You prayed for the soul of the goddamn turkey? But, well, you wouldn't let me finish. Enough, Mickey said. Surprised you didn't have the dog in there, Em. Maybe continue. Bobby continued as Emily passed the beans. Bobby, enough, Dad said. You're exhausting me. He waved his hand with the cigarette at her in the form of a half-assed cross. There, you're safe. Easy for you to say, Bobby said, and filled her plate with her special candied sweet potatoes. You got blessed by motherfucking Mary over there. Bobby, Bobby Sky said, shut the fuck up. Thank you, Skyler, Emily said. You shut the fuck up, Bobby said. Sky just looked at Emily and stuffed a piece of turkey in his mouth, and Bobby stuck her tongue out at her. I shook my head and passed the beans to Bobby. Food was cold, but we ate it anyway, and we laughed and we talked about other Christmases and mornings long gone. chapter, and it's getting toward the end of the book, the, the deed is about, you know, to go down, about to happen. 
Time was at hand as he raced through the streets like they were his own. He ran red lights and stop signs that got in his way. Maybe he thought he could be stopped if reckless. He had taken this far and, and there was no turning back by his own accord, so he dared the world to stop him. He dared God to intervene. But the world doesn't stop anything for anybody, and God doesn't care. Blind or asleep, the world, or God, looked at justice and evil all the same with indifference. Roll of the dice, flip of a card, drop of a hat, call it whatever you want. Shit happens because shit happens, and more shit happens because that shit happened. You could say shit what makes the world go round, and you'd be right. We had gotten through town, drove west up the bluff, and out into the darkness. Or he, he had gotten through town, up into the darkness. Yellow dashes on the blacktop came together faster and faster until it was a solid ribbon of caution. A sign, maybe, but he ignored it if it was. He put his foot to the floor and took whatever amount of highway he needed to get to that place. That place he had hunted for and found, chosen and hid in his little bundle of destiny. The right place for doing the right thing that needed to be done. Why he hadn't done it already was just another dare, a test to see if God had chosen the site. He turned off the highway and into the gravel for several more miles, deeper and deeper into the wilderness he drove. Pulling into the field road, turning off the lights, he drove on and parked in the shallow snow behind a cedar grove. He sat for a little while, letting his eyes adjust to the night forest and smoked a cigarette. He reached under the seat and pulled the gun case that kept a 9mm and he laid it on the seat, caressed his hand over the smooth surface. Hesitation, he thought. Not now. Too late for that. He put the cigarette out in the ashtray and opened the case. There was no moon, but he could see the black metal shimmer and the light from the stars as he inserted the clip, checked the safety, and held it up in front of him like something precious, like a little god, his god, it would have to be. He pulled the backpack he'd been keeping over his shoulder and holstered the weapon and left the truck and headed off into the black and ancient timber like an animal, indifferent to justice or evil, right or wrong. That's probably, probably doing Kevin, we have both of those books right here. Right here. After this, after uh, after we're we're done, you, you, you ought to take one home, one of each, or two of each, because uh, you know they're, they're 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 good for gifts, uh, stocking stuffers. Christmas is just ten months away, so. All right, and that was Kevin Lynn Helmick. Uh, you can find him at his blog, which is entitled The Right Room, and that is located at kevinlynnhelmick.blogspot.com. That's right, and he's actually got a Facebook group set up called Heartland Gothic, and um, I think it's just kind of a landing. I think in the reading he actually said something like there's no rules or whatever, so it's just kind of a place to hang out for people who like books and like talking about writing and stuff. I like books. Do you like talking about writing? Meh. I like talking to people who write more than I like talking about <laughs> writing. Um, <laughs> so it's cool to hear him talk. And uh, the thing that I liked about the way he, he reads is it seems, and this is going to sound dumb. I don't really know exactly how to express it, but it's just kind of cool. Like it's not forced or, or scared or anything. It's just kind of cool and laid back. Yeah, it was very natural and, and, and conversational is, is kind of the way I remember thinking about it while we were sitting there and listening to it. So, Yeah, absolutely. All right. So uh, we've got lots of cool stuff coming up on the show, including installments four and five of the Noir at the Bar readings. Um, 
and we're in uh, in talks to bring you some more cool author interviews. But uh, while you're waiting for those, go back and check out some of our favorite interviews. Um, Craig Clevenger, Stephen Graham Jones, Donald Ray Pollock, Max Berry, plenty others in the interview section on our webpage, and uh, we're putting together some pretty cool stuff to bring you guys. So I mentioned earlier, I like talking to people who write. That would have been the perfect segue into this. Yeah, and we just totally dropped the ball. But yeah, we have tons and tons of uh, dozens we can actually now officially say dozens of author interviews um so feel free to go back and check some of those out until next time i'm livia snudden and i'm rob olson keep reading one eye on a pistol and a